0: at least right now, the evidence and the momentum in the economic data and what we see coming from both monetary policy support, fiscal policy support, and importantly, household savings and corporate CapEx. Uh, and you add on to that banks that are getting ready to start lending again, I think gives us a good sense that growth will continue well into next year. Uh, beyond that, we have to look at the broader uh Secular forces that have shaped the last decade, but at least for the next year, we're optimistic at this stage.
1: That was Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number one of season five. We are excited to be back from our summer break and looking forward to a season where we'll be diving deep into the factors shaping today's markets across asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to be the first to know about our latest episodes, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, even Audible. That's a new one. So you can find us there by searching Streaming My guest today is Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute and chief global strategist with Bearings. In this episode, we attempted to provide our listeners with a back-to-school guide of sorts. We covered a lot of ground on the macroeconomic and geopolitical issues that are facing markets for the second half of this year. Specifically, we discussed the Delta variant, of course, and how its proliferation is impacting the economic growth picture. We talked about inflation and whether or not the latest data that Christopher and team are seeing is actually supporting the quote-unquote transitory thesis or not. And we hit on the U.S. infrastructure bill, drawing upon Christopher's deep experience in Washington. Uh, to help us get a view into how that legislation may or may not become law, and of course, what the possible implications for investors may be. Finally, we discussed the headlines around China's recent industry crackdowns and what they mean for the U.S.-China relationship, as well as the humanitarian crisis playing out in Afghanistan and the possible implications for the world political order. A lot to cover in 30 minutes, right? Well, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart. All right, Christopher Smart, thanks for joining me again today. Great to be with you, Greg. I wanted to have you on today to help us kind of set the stage, right? So we wanted to kind of cover a lot of ground here in a short amount of time and basically catch folks up on what is going on Uh in a number of the kind of more macro geopolitical type situations, and maybe what they need to focus on uh, for the rest of the year. Let's start with COVID, actually. So, uh, of course, we're recording this uh, virtually, as we've been doing for the last year and a half. Uh, as you know, the Delta variant has you know thrown a wrench into many return to office plans for so many. It's uh, you know changing uh, what's going on with schools and mask mandates and all that kind of stuff. So. As you think about all this from the perspective of a macroeconomist, you know, I'm curious to hear about what some of the developments that you and your team at the Institute are following most closely, and then maybe what some of the
0: biggest impacts could be for investors. Well, I'm really glad you asked my point of view as an economist, because all all too many of us for the last year and a half have been straying into fields like epidemiology or public health or the minutiae of travel regulations. I think what is so difficult at this point is that uh, what seemed to be a much clearer picture at the beginning of the summer, companies talking about back to work, schools talking about back to school, uh, travel restrictions looking like they were going to be lifted, all of that has changed with the emergence of the Delta variant. And uh, I'm not going to get into the details of why that is so which is again, beyond my, my area of expertise, but we're seeing breakthrough cases. Uh, we're seeing confusing messages about the need for booster shots only eight months after you know, an, an initial vaccination. And the rules, if you've talked to anybody trying to travel just from you know, Italy to the UK or uh, across Europe, the, the rules about what tests you need, what documentation you need, what quarantine time you need are changing, uh, it seems week to week. Um, so I think what is important for investors to focus on though, is the fact that while this is a variant that appears to be spreading very quickly, overwhelmingly vaccines seem to be effective at keeping people out of the hospital and certainly, um, you know, reducing the number of deaths. The latest headlines raise some question marks around that, but it's a very, very small number of cases. So we still think we're headed to a world that is more like normal this fall than we had last fall certainly Um, we still think we're going to see economic activity continue to pick up Uh, and we've seen that in the latest data we had a very good jobs report uh, for july Uh, retail sales while they uh, in the us while they are, are slow looked like they slowed a little bit um, a lot of that had to do in July that a lot of that had to do with uh, automobile purchases. Um, ironically, in July, it seemed like restaurants and bars activity picked up and we may see that trail off, I think, going into the fall. There, there may be some real headwinds again for the hospitality industry, but it's very hard to imagine lockdowns like we had before. Uh, and the momentum behind the economic recovery continues to be very strong.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's really encouraging to hear. And I guess, uh, you know, as you've thought about different asset classes and the implications, you know, one obviously that stands out is, is office space. And, you know, obviously, you know, bearings has a quite a sizable, uh, real estate business. I mean, what are your kind of high level thoughts, uh, on that? And, and again, I know that's a big topic. We could do many episodes just on the future of office, but, but high level, I'm curious of, of your thought
0: there. Well, I think clearly things have changed since before the pandemic, and um, as a friend of mine said, you know, she expects her grandchildren to ask her, you know, so so grandma, did you really used to go to the office every single day? Um, and you know, the use of offices will change. Um, you know, if it's not five days a week, it will be more than one day a week. I think again, people still want and long for that contact and that interaction, and I think the important thing will be for office managers, office designers, office investors um, to be as flexible as possible over the next few years to see how that space, those needs are changing. Uh, If you don't need an office or a cube for everybody for 40 hours a week, what kind of other meeting space do you need? Will it be in the center of town? Will it be closer to where people live in the suburbs? I think having that kind of flexibility to upgrade or alter the, the scope and shape of the workspace uh, will be uh, particularly well valued by investors and by, by tenants over the next few years as they sort out what the new patterns will be. And then secondly, not just the, the, si- the shape of the office itself, but as I mentioned before, the location. We still believe that you know, cities will continue to attract and draw uh, people for work and for entertainment and for education. That's where ideas will continue to um, incubate. And so center cities uh, should continue to see very strong demand. But it's, uh, it's also you know, very important to look at you know, second tier cities, smaller places where quality of life might be better. People might find ways to commute to the bigger cities more easily uh, if they don't have to do it every day. And I think that's a whole set of opportunities worth pursuing as well. I think it probably is a watershed moment
1: for for the office uh, long-term. I, I know our real estate team has a ton to say on this. I, I think we need to tee up an episode uh, later this season, probably on office specifically, because I know they've got a lot of thoughts. And I think pretty consistent with what you're saying around the office definitely having a place, Uh, But does it look different? You know, tenants' uh, needs and wants and requirements have changed substantially looking for, you know, really high tech air filtration systems, touchless, in and out of the building, um, amenities, etc. So uh, I think the trend that they're seeing and that they're investing into is really highly specialized uh, space across many industries, whether you're talking about healthcare, creative industries, etc, etc. So lots to be seen there. But in the interest of time, let's move on and talk about uh, another big theme that has been with us for most all of this year, I would say, and that has been uh, worries around inflation. So uh, of course, we've seen price rises in many parts of this economy. We've seen uh, the housing market uh, be quite strong. We've seen some really crazy things going on in the used car market. Um, I know that you and the Institute team have been believers in the thesis that Uh, Inflation is, quote unquote, transitory. Uh, And and I'm curious kind of where we are now at this stage in late August. um, Are you becoming more or less confident in that transitory thesis?
0: Well, as you say, we're believers in thesis. And now I think we're beginning to have evidence uh, that that is showing that we we were right. Uh, The latest CPI data we have out of the U.S. for July – still shows the headline number peaking at 5.4%. The core uh, number, which excludes things like food and energy, which are more volatile prices, uh, is starting to drop. And we would expect that both uh, base effects will continue to fall away and lead to lower inflation over the next several months. But also importantly, as you mentioned, things like used cars, all of those supply chain bottlenecks we continue to see, but see much less. uh, And those will continue to lead to a lower inflation number. It's important to remember that in the developed world, inflation is not a problem in Japan, it's not a problem in Europe, it's really where we're focused a lot more of our attention in the US. Um, But I think it's pretty easy to see how the headline numbers will start to moderate from here. A lot of attention we had uh, this spring to timber prices, inputs, and building materials. those have come off a lot. Um, the used car number that you mentioned, which was up ten percent month on month in June, was essentially flat in July. So you're seeing a normalization of demand. You're seeing a normalization of supply. And we think that you know that will continue to be the case um, as we go through the fall and on into next year. I'll just say, Next year is where the questions arise, whether inflation is going to settle close to that 2% target that the Fed has in mind and other central banks have in mind, um, or whether it will drop back down below that number. And that's where the real question in the market shifts and maybe has shifted a little bit in the last couple of months from focusing on inflation to focusing on what the durable growth rate will be once we pass through this pandemic okay
1: and it, if you if you might be wrong uh, on this transitory <laughs> thesis
0: I know uh, great probably
1: remote possibility but what what would cause you to be wrong?
0: Well obviously that's that's a question we also ask ourselves almost every day. Um, what would cause us to be wrong would be the fact that these continuing price increases and supply chain disruptions, start changing expectations it's not so much any individual price rising or falling that drives long-term inflation as much as it is expectations of inflation uh, by individuals by consumers by by households who then go back to their employer and say you need to give me a raise and it was that kind of cyclical spiral uh, that led to the inflation of the, the 70s that we all focus on as a comparison point. Things were very different then than they were now. But to the extent that people like me say, oh, it's just a one-off, the base effects are falling away. But the, that story continues for next year, a couple of years. And then people say, well, listen, I need to start getting a raise at my job to keep up with the cost of living. That's when things start getting really difficult for the Fed. Um, Okay. Well, that's an important factor for us to keep an eye on in terms of the
1: growth outlook, uh, both here in the US uh, and abroad. Um, Another factor that we're keeping an eye on in terms of how it could impact uh, economic growth, of course, is some of the legislation coming out of Washington. Uh, I'm specifically thinking about the infrastructure package. And I'm very interested to get your view here. you know, not only from your stance today as head of the Bearings Institute, um, but but also just to kind of leverage your experience a little bit here. So you have worked in Washington in the Obama administration uh, as an economic advisor as part of the Treasury. Uh, so you kind of, for lack of a better phrase, have seen how the sausage gets made uh, from the inside. So, for our, if our listeners are not incredibly familiar with where we are with this infrastructure package, catch us up with where we are, uh, how the sausage is being made, and you know what we should watch maybe for the rest of this year in terms of how this is going to play out.
0: Yeah, I, I've always had trouble with that sausage metaphor because at least you know at the end of the process you're going to get a sausage. Uh, In Washington, things are much less predictable and they can turn very quickly. But what we know so far is that the Senate has passed two infrastructure packages. In fact, one, roughly $1.2 trillion package for hard infrastructure, bridges, tunnels, upgrading the electricity grid, fixing our water supply system, water distribution system, uh, more protection against uh, cyber attacks for companies and for our uh, internet uh, infrastructure. That passed uh, roughly I think the vote was 69 uh, for um, the for the bill. so broad bipartisan Republican and democratic support in the Senate. And that is headed to the House. The second thing that happened was that the Democrats on their own, with 50 votes, Uh, passed a budget measure for $3.5 trillion. So you've got one on hard infrastructure and 3.5 really more focused on soft infrastructure, uh, education benefits for college, improving childcare benefits, um, improving uh, access to healthcare, A whole lot of things that aren't traditionally viewed as infrastructure, but but are increasingly seen as by the Democrats, uh, a real important key to boosting growth in the US to boosting incomes of uh, lower income families, but also creating a workforce that is better trained, uh, more resilient and will drive economic growth going forward very quickly that bill is also now with the house and democratic leaders in particular speaker nancy pelosi is faced with a dilemma she could pass the senate's hard infrastructure bill right away but the liberal members of her caucus have said they won't vote for it until the 3.5 trillion dollar package is passed and they are holding that hard infrastructure bill hostage so that they keep moderates in line for the much bigger and more ambitious plans they have. Uh, The House Democrats have a small majority, uh, eight or 10 seats, which means that even a few defections could scuttle the hard infrastructure bill. Although the moderates are saying, look, we could pass this, there are a lot of Republicans who voted for this in the Senate, so House Republicans and Democrats could easily get this through. So far though the speaker is saying she wants to hold off and get both of them passed at the same time and that's where the risks lie in the drama lies in the in the fall
1: ahead so is there a chance that nothing gets passed or is and or is there a chance that That both get passed? I mean, I don't know that you can put probabilities on these things, but uh, what's your best guess in terms of how this could realistically play out? And of course, we're interested from an investor standpoint, what the implications of
0: such could be. Well, they're very important investor implications because whether the the United States spends um, 4.7, if you add them together, $4.7 trillion over the next 10 years or zero, um, that will have a big impact on the direction of economic growth. Uh, There is a chance to answer your first question that nothing happens or that it gets kicked into next year. Um, But I think there is a lot of pressure to get something done this fall. Uh, The betting is that ultimately that the hard infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion will get passed, uh, again, because there are enough Republican and Democratic votes to support it. The 3.5 is much more problematic. Uh, Even the Democrats who supported it in the Senate would like to dial back that number, would like, you know, aren't thrilled about some of the measures that are in it. So that may be uh, pulled back as well. But I think if you just ballpark it and say, well, maybe it's not three and a half trillion, but it's two and a half trillion, it's a lot of money. And what it does from an investor's point of view is uh, ensure that as the Special stimulus money related to the pandemic expires, there will be continued fiscal support for economic activity, for economic growth, and going to important areas that should make the U.S. have that infrastructure, soft and hard, to grow at a better rate than it did uh, before the pandemic.
1: All right. Another country that has uh, f- d- done uh, some work focusing on infrastructure over the years is China. And I think any, <laughs> uh, any sort of outlook or macro geopolitical discussion uh, on what's ahead would be seriously incomplete without... Uh, discussing what's going on with China. So, uh, of course, our listeners will be familiar with the quote-unquote crackdowns that uh, we've seen in recent weeks and months uh, coming from policymakers in China, uh, impacting industries from real estate to technology to education and others. In fact, we recorded an episode uh, just a couple of weeks ago with our head of emerging market corporate debt, Omatunde Lawal, talking specifically about the implications of all of this for emerging market debt corporate issuers. But um, it would be great to kind of zoom out a little bit on that because uh, obviously you're looking at the world from maybe a, a bit broader perspective. Um, and it, I'd be curious, you know, as you and the team with the in- Institute look at uh, some of these actions that have taken, I'm curious kind of what jumps out to you. And I'm sure the, the potential implications of course, can be sort of dizzying, um, as I'm sure they could be so broad, but, but, but what jumps out at you, what, what would you zero in on from an investor standpoint from some, some of this activity that we've seen out of China?
0: Well, well, first, let me just say that of the things we've discussed so far, whether it's the pandemic or inflation or infrastructure, those are things that are clearly very important this fall going on into next year. The U.S.-China relationship is going to be crucial over the next decade and maybe beyond. And so focusing on China, I I try and tell people that you you can't focus enough on what's going on in China and how that impacts the U.S.-China relationship. The second thing in particular to these regulatory measures that have been introduced in China Uh, To put them in some context, uh, as the Chinese economy has started to gain traction and accelerate, let's say 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the Chinese government was very clear about uh, how it wanted to regulate and shape and control growth in areas like telecoms or energy or finance. But the tech sector was, was not part uh, of that deliberate Chinese government framework in a sense. And it was left to grow not entirely unregulated, but much less regulated than other parts of the economy. And now we're in a world in which uh, China's tech industry is a $4 trillion industry. Um, there are, by some counts, you know, 70, 75 firms worth more than $10 billion. Uh, and maybe 160 unicorns. Those are firms that are valued at more than a billion dollars. And half of those are in artificial intelligence, big data, and robotics. And so the Chinese government is facing two problems. On the one hand, uh, some of these tech giants, Alibaba, Tencent, um, uh, Didi, which is a ride-hailing application, uh, are giants and don't have a lot of competition and aren't very well regulated. There have been complaints about how drivers are treated at DD uh, the pricing uh, that some of these uh, apps um, is not, not very transparent. So there is a real need to, I think, regulate and create more com- competition in the area. The second one is, is a, the, the bilateral, U.S.-China rivalry, where China is really focused on building up its expertise in these areas, uh, particularly in AI and robotics. And that's where it has seen it needs to be more reliant on its own efforts. It it wants to keep its companies from becoming too dependent on international capital, uh, listings and foreign stock exchanges, for example. And so the flow of regulatory measures we've seen over the last few weeks, I think um, is is an effort to respond to both of those needs. Do you have any sense at this
1: stage if this is the start of something broader um, that we could see, or is it too early to tell?
0: It's always too early to tell because it's always uh, it's never very transparent in terms of what is behind um, this crackdown on the tech sector because, as I say, there, there are measures being implemented uh, for different reasons against different companies. I think anybody who is investing in the tech sector who didn't see this coming um, may be kicking themselves a little bit right now, because obviously China is uh, uh, very uh, unpredictable in some ways in terms of its domestic regulation. And this was an area that needed some regulation. Uh, It's also now clearly caught in the middle of the U S China rivalry uh, where there will be, you know, measures, sanctions, export controls, on particularly hardware, but also probably some IP and software, um, and that will make it especially difficult to do that. Having said that, uh, if you can get comfortable with the regulatory risks, China continues to be a country that is very large and continuing to grow, and the tech rollout within that economy will uh, will provide a lot of basis for growth over the next decade um, in the context of this much more difficult um, political framework.
1: Well, surely the kind of power dynamics, the rivalry for global leadership across uh, so many different realms, will be a a theme that that seems like it'll be, as you say, here with us for probably decades uh, to come. Um, And that kind of leads us into the last uh, topic that I was hoping to talk about because it, it does have implications certainly for the leadership role that the U.S. will or or won't be playing, uh, I guess, in the years and decades ahead. Um, So I wanted to finish up and and get your take on the situation uh, that the entire world's really been watching very closely in recent weeks. And that that is the humanitarian crisis that's playing out in Afghanistan uh, right now as the U.S., of course, attempts to extract itself from this 20 year war and the Taliban uh, have gained control faster than I think anyone seems to have uh, predicted. So as you look at that um, situation, uh, curious what your kind of high level takeaways are, and I guess what you'll be watching most closely, uh, and maybe even what are some possible implications uh, that investors might not even be thinking about today?
0: Well, I unfortunately wrote a column uh, for our Leading Thoughts series that was entitled Nothing Ever Happens in August last week. Um, And I think uh, that gives you a sense of just how quickly things deteriorated in Afghanistan. Uh, Having said that, and, and the pictures are dramatic, the headlines are dramatic, and it is a clearly a uh, black mark on um, the Biden administration's foreign policy. It raises a lot of questions about U.S. prestige, about its commitments to its allies in other parts of the world, and you know a whole lot of soul-searching about how we could have done things differently, how we could have expected to have a different outcome from other countries that have been involved in Afghanistan, whether it is Britain or Russia or later the Soviet Union. And I think those are questions that everybody has to take uh, into account. From an investment point of view, the implications are very small and narrow at this stage. Afghanistan is the world's 96th largest economy. Um, In terms of GDP per capita, it ranks 177th. So the economic impact is very small. What is starting to raise questions, what what I think the questions around U.S. prestige, U.S. foreign policy, U.S. leadership have implications for are the continued uh, role of the dollar as a reserve currency and the continued view of U.S. treasuries as a safe haven in a time of crisis. Now, I think... I would just say two things, which are this particular set of events in Afghanistan, as dramatic as they are, are not dissimilar to bloody noses America has had with the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, the fall of the Shah of Iran, uh, obviously the fall of Saigon, um, and, and through all of those episodes the us economy over decades has continued to grow and strengthen and our financial markets have continued to, to attract capital from around the world so i wouldn't play too much into this one event the second thing though is that you know we are on at least a 10 or maybe 15 year trajectory since the global financial crisis or maybe a little bit before where america is turning inward politicians across the political spectrum republicans and democrats uh, while they may criticize the the way the administration has pulled out, very few voices are saying we need to spend another decade in Afghanistan uh, because there is a view that we need to spend more money at home, rebuild our infrastructure, focus more on our own problems with the time, attention and money that we have. And so I think uh, that's where we need to watch um, whether that focus at home leads us to become stronger, more attractive for foreign investment, an ability to lead in other parts of the world in other ways, um, or whether we do turn much more inward and more insular. And I think that's the broader set of questions that uh, investors will be watching. But again, it's one of those things that will play out bit by bit, day by day, over a 10 or a 20-year period. Thank
1: you for that perspective. I think that 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 really does actually put it in very good um, perspective, uh, what what we're witnessing right now. Um, Well, we've done it. We have gone through all these subjects in what I would still call a relatively short amount of time. (laughs) Now, taking everything in, what we talked about, the Delta variant, inflation, infrastructure, China, Afghanistan, taking it all in together and looking out, let's say, for the rest of this year, let's say into 2022, where are you? Positive? Are you bullish? Bearish? Excited? Worried? of the above? Or how would you characterize your your outlook at this stage?
0: So the Institute's macroeconomic dashboard tries to present a couple of different uh, investment scenarios over the next 12 to 18 months. And ours is still very much what we call the best of all possible worlds. Strong growth, strong recovery, moderate inflation, uh, and something that looks quite durable that would make risk assets generally, whether it's equities ultimately, emerging markets through a period of reflation, uh, private credit, um, uh, attractive places to be. The issues we have discussed, I think, is is a whole series of risks we need to keep watching to make us change our minds. But at least right now, the evidence and the momentum in the economic data and what we see coming from both monetary policy support, fiscal policy support, and importantly, household savings, and corporate capex, uh, and you add on to that banks that are getting ready to start lending again, I think gives us a good sense that growth will continue. Earnings should be good um, well into next year. Um, Beyond that, we have to look at the broader uh, secular forces that have shaped the last decade, but at least for the next year, we're optimistic at this stage. Okay. I like to hear it.
1: Um, okay. For our listeners, you are going to want to check out Christopher's, uh, materials and you're going to want to stay up to date with what he's saying, because everything we've talked about here today, and then some he's writing about all the time as well as his team. So you can find them, uh, on bearings.com under the Institute tab. So check that out. Uh, find Christopher on LinkedIn, where uh, he publishes his leading thoughts, which uh, I know he's got quite the following now. And uh, is some of the most catchy headlines you'll ever see on all of these subjects. So that is a must. And then, uh, and then of course, check him out on Twitter at CSmart, uh, where once in a while, he might even give you a, a hot take on uh, the Boston Red Sox team. So Check him out there. Christopher, this has been a pleasure as always. Thanks for helping us to uh, set the stage for the
0: rest of the year. Really enjoyed it. Great to be with you, Greg, uh, as always. And go Sox.
1: Thanks for listening to episode number one of season five of Streaming Income. Remember, if you want to be the first to hear about our latest episodes on asset classes, ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.